Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we do ask that you would give life and light to your word that we may see, believe, and be changed. We do love your word and it is delightful to learn more about it. But may it not be our end goal to simply amass knowledge, but to be transformed and to reflect your glory back to you. We ask that you would work in us, we pray, for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Amen. Now, some of you may know, growing up as a child, I was an unusually skittish child. Scared of everything, didn't talk really until I was almost in college. I was a mess. I mean, really, it was not okay. And uh, true confession, one of those things that I was terribly terrified of when I was young, I don't know what I read, but I was terrified of aliens. And I'm not talking like I was at seven years old mourning immigration reform. I was terrified of the idea of aliens. Uh, It's ridiculous, I know, it's silly now, as an adult looking back on it. But I have a memory of my childhood of this passage. My parents sat down with me one night, I couldn't sleep, I was a wreck. And my parents walked in with a coin and put a coin in their hand, they showed me the coin, and then closed their hand and said, if you can get it, it's yours. Well, at seven years old, there's great ambition in the heart of a seven-year-old boy, particularly when money is concerned. And I thought that me doing my best, I could somehow manage to weasel the coin out of my parents' hand. And of course, obviously, you know the answer. It's impossible. No seven-year-old, apart from some sort of knife or a hammer, could get any kind of coin out of their parents' hand because mom and dad are so much superior in strength and might and power. And after that, my parents pulled out the Bible and read this passage to me. And then the next day forced me to memorize it against my will so that me from a young wee one would have God's promises stored up in my heart that nothing could ever pull me out of my father's hand. So that no matter what fear I had to confront, no matter what difficulty I would face, that the promise of God would be stored up inside, both in word and in picture, to see nothing can take me from my Father's hand. Now, not my earthly Father, because He's not that strong. But my Heavenly Father. And so for me, this passage is one of those passages that has really transformed how I look at life and the world And you and me, and may it be that as we study God's word, we too are assured of God's promises. That you and me, together, no matter how young or old we are, no matter how actively rejoicing in it or even against our will, we may know that for God's people we rest within his hand. This promise, though, comes at an important time in the ministry of Jesus as we've been going through the book of John. You remember that in previous chapters 8 and 9 and such, he's been at the kind of last major festival of the year. It's in the fall. It's the booths when they camp out. They have parties. They celebrate. They have all kinds of food. It's harvest festival. Yay! 
Well, now we've skipped ahead and it's no longer fall. It's now the winter before he is crucified. It's nearing the end of his ministry. It's nearing the end of his time here on earth in his uh, messianic service prior to death. And we come to the Feast of Dedication. It's at the point in Christ's ministry where he's done enough and said enough that people now know who he is everywhere he goes. And the Jews and the Pharisees and the scribes are ticked off everywhere he goes. He is, however, not yet permitting his death to come. It's going to be an important thing to note when we get to the end of the passage. He's not yet permitting his death to come. The fullness of time is not yet here. It's not yet Passover. The lamb is not yet ready. And so he has this rather heated, and I would say equally comical, interaction with the Jews. Yet again, uh, they are struggling with him as a Messiah for a number of reasons. One, they understand that he's claimed to be the Messiah. This is why they're constantly trying to arrest him. It's why they've tried to kill him a number of times. They understand it. Though you can, I'm sure all of us have had those friends that are like, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Yes, he did, and they knew it. It's why they don't like him everywhere, and it's for a number of reasons. One is, he's not the type of Messiah of God they would have expected. I mean, again, we, we have this kind of sanctification, <laughs> scrubbing of human memory that we kind of oftentimes forget what Jesus was actually like. He's a poor guy from an uneducated background. He was a carpenter, probably had cuts and scars. We find out from Isaiah 53, not a particularly handsome guy, not someone that we would be desiring to look at, not someone that we would go, oh, he's magnificent. He's a guy. And then when he comes into his ministry on the outside, at least, he's a homeless traveling rabbi whose disciples really don't make him look good at any given opportunity. I mean, they're fishermen, they're bozos, they're tax collectors, and everywhere he goes, the people that always want to be around him are the bad people from the town. And the Jews are threatened with this because he's not the type of Messiah they've always dreamed of. This isn't the guy who's going to overthrow Rome. I mean, he, he doesn't look like he could overthrow anything, a table. I mean, why, why, would, why would we follow this guy? And then if he is what he says he is, if he is actually the Messiah, not only is he not the Messiah we ever wanted, he's the Messiah we have to obey. And they really don't like that. And so they come to him yet again with a trap. And as honest as this question might actually sound on the surface, it is not. It's a trap. They know the answer. They've known the answer. It's nothing new, but it is hysterical to hear. Jesus is in the temple. He's worshiping as he was in the habit of doing. Luke tells us that he was faithful in worship. So should we be. The Jews gather around him and they ask him, how long will you keep us in suspense? How are you going to, we're on pins and needles. How long until you tell us, tell us plainly if you're the Christ. Which, again, I find hysterical. Like, have you not paid attention, Jews, to any of the conversations you've had in like the last seven pages of my Bible? Have you, have you just kind of miraculously forgotten them? 
Now, Jesus, being all wise, knows this is not the time for a, yes, I'm the Messiah. Really, for two reasons. One is, if he says, yes, I'm the Messiah, what are they doing right away? Well, they're going to kill him on the spot. And it's not Passover. It's not time yet. The fullness of time has not yet come. The book of John is not yet completed. We still haven't had, you know, communion instituted and all kinds of things. But secondly, they're not looking for an honest answer. They're not looking for, are you the Messiah? They know the answer to that question. He's told them time and time again. No, instead, they're looking for him to kind of trap himself, to overspeak, to say something that they can get on him. So they can store up and say, well, you said this. And Christ in his infinite wisdom, his perfect wisdom, comes back to them with a beautiful answer. Jesus answers them and says, I told you, and you do not believe. He, he presumes the answer. I told you. You can picture a, a mother speaking with their child. <laughs> Mom, am I allowed to go play in the street? I told you the answer to that. What is it presuming? You know the answer, and you've known it all along. It's not something that's a mystery to you. I've told you the answer. Yes, of course I'm the Christ. But you don't believe, and the reason why you don't believe is because you're not one of mine. You're my enemy. You're uh, rejecting me. You're not believing in me, not submitting to me. You're not part of my flock. And then 27, 28, and 29, which is where we're going to focus, again, a passage that has shaped me more than many, some of my favorite verses in the scriptures. Jesus gives one of the most kind of beautiful, elegant, and profound answers that you're going to see anywhere around. I told you, verse 25, I told you you don't believe. Why? Well, the works I do bear witness to my name. And then in 27, 29, kind of all the following, he shows them what his works are. And this is the first kind of main principle for us to see. The divine nature of Christ is displayed beautifully in his works. The divine nature of Christ is displayed beautifully in his works. And it's important to remember, we've been talking about this in Sunday school with the Christological heresies. No one at this time doubts his humanity. They all understand that he's human because they can look at him. He's sitting right in front of him. They could walk up and grab his arm if they were curious. They could pull his hair if they were really ambitious. He's right there in front of them. No one doubts that he's man. The big question for them is, is he God? Well, is he Messiah? Is he God? Is he the anointed one of the Lord? And notice what his answer of works are. 25, he says, the work I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Well, let's see what those works are. In 27, he gives six kind of things, and they're paired up to be this kind of little elegant, something my, my, my people are and something I am paired together. First, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And again, this beautiful kind of relationship that he's explaining in his work. Well, what does it mean that his works are proof of his divinity? What does it mean that his works are bearing witness about the Father's work in him? Bearing witness of the Father's name. Well, it's showing first off that he has his own people. 
And they're scattered throughout all kinds of places, all kinds of nationalities, even at this time, all kinds of backgrounds and socioeconomic classes, all kinds of professions, even those bad professions that we don't really talk about. They're his. They belong to him, and they hear his voice. I love that. It's just a portrait of what our Savior is like. It it portrays Jesus as one who is constantly speaking. Constantly speaking. And then when his children come into his presence, they know the voice. It's, oh, I got it. Many of you, if you watch the news or kind of around anywhere this week, you saw the video kind of showing what's new and happening in science where uh, the small child was given the cochlear implant for the first time and his little baby. This is a pretty amazing movie where the little video is this little child is kind of whining and fussing while they're cramming the, you know, the hearing aid and getting it all fixed and right. And then for the first time ever, the child hears mom and dad's voice and knows them instantly. It's this amazing thing. This child who can't hear knows mom and dad's voice and is almost able to distinguish them from like the doctors and such. And the kid's face like ripples into this amazing smile. And it's like this big. And we're not talking large child. And you see in this kind of moment, it's, it's beautiful to see how God has made his children to have this relationship with mom and dad where they, it's audible. They, they hear, they know there's an intimacy connected with voice. And how sweet that is. It's one of those things that I as a pastor get to enjoy. I, I don't have the privilege of working in the nursery. I'm up here. But it's fun how many of these children in this church interact with me differently because they've known my voice from inside the womb. They've heard it their whole lives. And though I don't get to be in the nursery with them, I don't get to hold them and, and, and carry them the same way that everybody else does. They know me, they love me because there's this connective force between the way the Lord uses his voice. We see it in simple things like the church and with moms and dads, but here it's something even greater between Jesus and his people as their souls resonate with his voice. And the product of this relationship with his voice is that he knows them. And this is not like that kind of knowledge like, do you know Algebra 2? I I guess I kind of did at some point in my life. I might know most of it now if I reviewed it or something. This is that intimate knowledge of like family, of relationship, of, of being together, being part of one another, the best that family can be. But he doesn't stop with that kind of pairing. I, my voice, and I know them. But then he goes back to kind of the sheep illustration. They follow me, and, well, like a good shepherd, I give them something. When the sheep follow me, I give them something. I lead them into good pastures. Well, what do I lead them into? Oh, I lead them into eternal life. Wait, what? They follow me and the gift that I give to my people. It's not just I give them, you know, joy and good things today. It's not that I'm so simple-minded as to give them like, you know, a couple of hundred bucks or something. I give them eternal life. What a, what a faithful God he is. What a gracious Messiah. And I, I love here that the pronouns that he's using. 
Who is it that gives them eternal life? Jesus is explicitly showing this. It's not, oh, by the way, God gives them eternal life and I just happen to be his messenger. I'm not just a good teacher. I'm not just a great preacher. I'm, I'm not just this, you know, really fancy, excellent guy who was so filled with the Spirit of God that, you know, sounded divine. No, Jesus is saying, look, I have eternal life. It's mine. I can give it to them because it belongs to me. He's going to purchase it in just a matter of months. It's his to distribute as he wishes. Okay, so then he goes to the third pairing here. Something they will do and then something he will do. And this one's the most amazing one. (laughs) They will. What are they going to do? Oh, they'll never perish. I love that one. The other ones are things that we can kind of actively be participants in. I really cannot be an active participant in the never perishing thing. In fact, the only way I can actively participate, I can just, I can make sure I perish doing stupid things. I can't make sure I don't perish. That's a work that only God can give, that only he can accomplish. And it's fun, the side of the equation that he keeps is no one will snatch them out of my hand. And I think out of all of the promises in the scripture, this is one of those that has been the most transformative for me personally. To know, to think, to feel that no matter where I am, or what I'm doing, or what I'm confronted with, or what I'm terrified by, or what scares the absolute willies out of me, nothing can take me out of his hand. Nothing can take me away. Again, he's drawing out the image of earlier of a thief that would come in and want to steal the sheep or a wolf that would want to come in and eat the sheep. And he's saying, look, none of those things can happen to mine. Nothing gets past me. Now, I recognize in a room this big, some of us in here probably still struggle with fear and some of us don't. And that's okay. But I would contend, if you're one of those people that do wrestle through having tremendous fears or insecurities, this is your answer. So then nothing, nothing can take you out of his hand. You can't lose your salvation. That can't be plucked away from you. You're in his hand. You can't lose your physical safety without his protection. He, he will take care of you. Now, that doesn't mean that we're impervious to damage and we need to go and act like ridiculous out in the world and be foolish. That's not a, a permission to say, I'm a superhero. I can do whatever I want to do. Nothing will, you know, I'm Superman. I can't die. Well, he did die, but I can't die. I'll be okay. No, we still be responsible, but to know that God has us and protecting us. Now that right there, those, those lists of works that Christ gives are pretty astounding. How he, he knows his people, he cares for his people, he gives them eternal life, he protects them perfectly forever and ever, eternally protecting them. He's mimicking the language of the Old Testament with how God cares for his people in Psalm 23 and in other places. But he doesn't stop there. I mean, that list of works would be clear enough to say, well, obviously he's the Messiah. No one else could do that. 
But if that weren't it, he, he chimes in, oh yes, one last sentence. <laughs> oh, by the way, why am I able to do all of these things? Why am I able to have my own people that belong to me? Why am I able to protect them? Why am I able to give them eternal life? Why am I able to speak to them and lead them? Why am I able to be their king? I and the Father are one. He drops this Trinitarian bomb on them at the end. It's here kind of structured in such a way as to remind the Jews of their own confession of faith. You may not know this, in Jewish order of worship and culture such, they had a confession of faith as well, and they used Deuteronomy, and they used Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That was their confession of faith. It was a proclamation of the unity of God. Your God is one. It's not many gods like the world around you. It's not idols or false gods like all of those other religions. You have one God and one God only. And Jesus ends his conversation here about his testimony of his works with, oh, by the way, that confession of faith you've been saying your whole life, it's about me. You've kind of missed the point. And even some of those times I've been sitting next to you while you've said it, it's about me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. One God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father and I are one. He drops that bomb on them. And I love 31. What's their immediate response? They understand. They know exactly what he's saying. Again, so they pick up the stones. That's it. We're going to kill you. And Jesus, wait, 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 wait. Time out. Pause. I've shown you many good works from the Father. Of which of them are you going to stone me? And here, I think he's actually here fixing one of the arguments that we love to hold kind of, kind of unintentionally in our mind, and certainly the American church loves to put forward, the idea that Jesus is just kind of this good moral teacher, that he's just a good man. He, he's just someone that I should follow. He's an example that I should live like. And so they question, I mean, Jesus kind of questions them with that. Well, okay, what, what bad thing are you killing me for? I've done good works, and now I've told you about my good works. What bad thing are you going to execute me for? And their response is unbelievably telling. It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. Their answer is shocking in many ways. Because they say, look, we know you're a good man. We're not going to kill you for anything you've done, because what you've done is good. We're killing you because you say you're God. And we can't live with that. You see, Jesus is explaining it clearly, and they're showing the answer. They get it. He's not just a moral teacher to follow. He's not just my example. He's not just, well, this is the way I like to pattern my life. He's very God himself. He's very God himself. And if that weren't proof enough in verse 34, he undoes them and embarrasses them really with the scriptures. He says, okay, you're having problems with me saying that I'm God. Let's go to the Psalms. And he takes them to Psalm 82, verse 6, where the Lord Lord himself calls people God's lowercase g when they behave in such a way that showcases the character of God, when they act in a way that showcases who God is, he calls them lowercase g gods. They're they're portraits of God, which makes sense. We're in his image. You want to look at what God looks like, that's us. 
And so when we behave according to his character, it would make sense that it would show that. And so now he turns the question on them in 37 and following, saying, look, if I'm doing good deeds, which in Psalm 82 is what these people are called gods for, and I'm following the pattern of the scriptures, how on earth can you judge me? And that's when they're like, well, we're not going to kill him now. We'll arrest him. (laughs) We, We can't kill him for that because he's right, but we'll just arrest him instead. He, he displays kind of all three parts of this, his works here, just in rapid succession. One is his command over his people. Two is his relationship with the Father. And three is his relationship with the Scriptures. Kind of boom, 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 boom. All parts, all told in one quick passage. How is it that he is our God and our Messiah? How is it he is our Savior? Well, one, he is king over his people. Two, he is one with the Father. And three, he is authoritative over the Word, for he is the Word. And it's for that reason that we do passages like this, and I think there are certain responses that we are called to have, and very quickly. First, uh, you've heard this application over and over and over. And honestly, if you're going to f- preach John faithfully, you kind of have to. What's your response to Jesus? Now, I would love for, uh, to believe that all of us in here have a robust view of Jesus. It's righteous, it's holy, and it's healthy. And therefore, our lives are dominated by belief in Christ. I would love to believe that. Problem is, there's there's enough people in the room, self-included, that I know that just can't work. And so it's appropriate that we kind of pause and think about, what do I think about Jesus? How am I responding to Jesus? Have I been trapped by the culture of the world into thinking, well, he's just a good model, someone I live like? Or is he my king and savior? Is he dominating my life, my thoughts, my feelings, my actions? Is my life being consumed with worship and obedience? Or just a, meh, he's like a good template for how to live. The second thing for God's people to do is to recognize these promises are for you if you are his person. If you're his child, his son or daughter, these promises here are given to you. To know that he's speaking to you today. And he never stops. Now, that's really easy for us to believe in the good times, but that's really important to have ingrained in our minds and in our hearts now so that when we hit the bad times, we believe it. When we're in the good times, to actively reinforce that idea that he's speaking to me because he loves me so that when I get in the darkest of dark, in fact, actually, the Psalms kind of use the language, the valley of the shadow of death. No, he's still speaking. And I can still hear. Because he's a good and gracious God, he doesn't stop. And even in the midst of difficulty, to reinforce it in the positive times so that we may know nothing can get us out of his hand. Nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing can separate us from his protection. Nothing can separate us from our Savior if we are his 
Now, you've noticed I've included that caveat a number of times. If we are his, if we are his, if we are his. And that is the difficult and maybe socially a little awkward point to be made. These promises, these blessings, this belonging to Jesus, being protected by Jesus, being known by Jesus, being spoken to by Jesus, all of these promises are only given to his flock. It might be the case that we have some in here today that aren't part of his flock. And if that's the case, talk to me. Give me afterwards. That's not a condition we want to let continue. And the Lord is gracious and merciful that he happily invites you to switch sides, change flocks, become one of his, that you may grow and receive all of the promises that are extended in Christ. And one last thing, just as we walk away, maybe how to use your Sunday today. Probably spend at different things, family, fellowship, certainly church this evening together. Maybe spend just a little bit of time actively trying to have a bigger view of Jesus. Just take 10 minutes. Spend it thinking, just meditating on the promises of God that you'd have a bigger view of Jesus. I've never heard of a Christian who ever complained about having a bigger view of Jesus. We always have small ones. But just spend a little time pondering that we might think of him more highly as he has been so gracious and faithful to us already. Father in heaven, we thank you that you and the Son are one, and the Spirit, three in one, one in three. We give you praise for your promises in Christ Jesus. Thank you that nothing can ever take us out of your hand, including ourselves. We do pray that we would trust in you more fully and be transformed by you. For Christ's sake. Amen.